Hi, Parkside Green. Pastor Jonathan here with you for Men's and Women's Bible Study. Uh, I'm so happy to be filling in for Pastor Steve over the next few weeks as we make our way through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Today we'll be covering chapter 3, verse 17, into the first verse of chapter 4. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about Paul's deep desire to know Christ by faith and through his own personal experience, all while calling all of us to press on towards maturity in Christ. Part of that maturity includes an ongoing call from Paul to not only imitate his life, but also to imitate the lives of those who follow Christ themselves, as well as offer continued warnings about what to avoid there in the church at Philippi. Our outline today will be fairly simple. You can follow along in the handout that's been provided. But first in verse 17, we'll see a model to follow, namely in Paul. We'll see a mindset to avoid, this mindset of these enemies of the cross of Christ in verses 18 through 19. And finally, we'll see a mission that we're all called to embrace as Christians, a mission to embrace in verse 20 through chapter 4, verse 1. So let's hit the ground running, a model to follow, verse 17. One of the things I want you to notice first is Paul's deep and ongoing affection for the Philippian believers here, right? He calls them brothers, and in the NIV, he calls on really the whole entire congregation. He says, brothers and sisters. Remember, Paul has a deep love for these believers in Philippi. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then he'll actually cap off this section with a deep and a moving reflection on them being his joy and crown. In verse 17, Paul calls on the Philippians to join in imitating his life and his walk, as well as others who are walking according to that same example. Paul's call to imitation isn't a unique one, and it's also not a prideful one. In other letters, in both 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians, Paul will call on the churches that he's writing to to be imitators of him as he imitates Christ. Alec Mattia writes this, he says, quote, Because Paul is an apostle of Christ, the way he lives sets the standards and it enunciates the principles of true Christian living. His growing delight in the Lord Jesus, reliance on him alone for salvation, determination to be like him and to do his will, and single-minded pursuit of that prize. I like how John Piper summarizes it. He says, quote, Paul is calling on the Thessalonians, or calling on the Philippians, rather, to imitate him, not to increase his authority over them, but to be an inspiration to them. And I love how uh, Piper puts that, right? Uh, that Paul is not calling on the Philippians to imitate him in a manipulative or in a controlling way of, hey, you need to do exactly what I do. I think as much as he's seeking to inspire them to be like Christ as he follows Christ. That brings us then to our second heading, a mindset to avoid. A mindset to avoid in verses 18 through 19. 
Paul's going to set up a contrast now in verse 18 from his own life that he has just commended to the Philippian believers to now these enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, their identity, a lot of people have struggled over. Who exactly is Paul talking about? Is it the Judaizers that he has already referenced earlier in chapter 3? This, this group of people who've said it's salvation plus all of these other things, plus circumcision, plus adherence to certain customs. Uh, is it antinomians, right? People who say, hey, now that we're saved, we can do whatever it is that we want. We actually don't have to, to follow any law. We can, we can actually be anti-law. We can, we can do whatever we want because at the end of the day, God's grace will cover everything. Uh, is it professing believers in the church who have now fallen away from the Lord, right? It could be a number of different categories, but regardless, their description that we have for us is still as much of uh, something for us to learn about and to take to heart as it would have been for the Philippian believers during their time. The threat is still present, and the description of those people are still clear, even if the identity of who these people are are unknown to us they most likely would have been known to the Philippian church. Three observations immediately come to light, and you can jot these down about these enemies of the cross of Christ. Number one, I want you to note the familiarity of Paul with these people, right? These enemies, he says, are people of whom I have often told you. So we know that this isn't the first time that the Philippian believers are hearing about these individuals. Secondly, note the emotion of Paul over this issue. Paul says that he is telling them now, even with tears, right? This isn't just Professor Paul kind of jotting down some quick notes of, hey, stay away from these bad guys. No, these are people that obviously are engaging Paul at a deep and an emotional level. He's writing about them not in a sense of glee or happiness, but rather from a sense of mourning and loss. Not only note the familiarity of Paul with these people, or his emotion, but thirdly, note the description that Paul gives to these enemies. And here in these characteristics, you'll note that Paul identifies these enemies of the cross of Christ with four descriptive categories. Number one, Paul says that their end is destruction. Alec Mattia writes this, he says, quote, it is enough to know that their ultimate end is an eternal and an irreversible separation from God. What Mitty is referencing there is what does it mean that their end is destruction? Does it mean that physically they're nearing a spot where they'll, they'll die and they're maybe reaching a physical end? Or is Paul noting something even more, more drastic, namely their eternal separation from God? Mattia here is noting, he's saying, regardless, their ultimate end, if they remain on this track of being enemies of the cross of Christ, their ultimate end is spiritual their end is destruction. You can contrast this from Paul's example. We'll kind of note an example of Paul in all of these points that Paul actually is contrasted against these enemies of the cross of Christ. If the enemies of the cross of Christ have as their end destruction, Paul, in just a few verses earlier in Philippians 3.14, has said that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of what? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? The enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, Paul's end is pressing towards the goal. Secondly, we're told that their God is their belly, right? This idea of their actual belly, their guts, the, the thing that motivates them from the inside to the outside. This group of people are motivated by their appetites and by their fleshly desires, right? There's, there's no authority that they adhere to and that they submit to 
other than their own personal appetite and satisfaction. Number three, the third characteristic is that they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Things which they should condemn, things that they should be embarrassed about, things that they should not be associated with, they actually find glory in. And in some ways, you'll probably hear some echoes of another trajectory of sinful depravity from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where Paul notes that people who give themselves over to unrighteousness are actually glorying in things that they have no right to do so. Contrast this with Paul's example. In Paul, in chapter 3, verse 3, has already said this. He says, quote, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Right? Paul says, listen, these people, these enemies, they glory in their shame. My glory is in Christ and in Christ alone. The fourth characteristic of these enemies of the cross of Christ is that their minds are set on earthly things. They are, they are earthbound. Now, a caution here is not to say that Paul doesn't want them to think about anything here on earth, namely the created world that God's provided, because in fact, in next week's teaching, we'll actually see that Paul commends that. Paul commends us to actually be able to look into creation and to look at the world around us and find things that are true and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise and to think on these things. No, rather what Paul is saying is that they are earthbound in the sense that they, that they are characterized by a preoccupation with the worldly affairs of life. Frank Thielman writes this, he says, earthly things are not just the everyday affairs of life, but they are things that characterize worldly life in opposition to God. You might think about what Paul says to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, where he encourages the Colossian believers to set their mind on things above, not on things below, right? Paul's not saying, hey, don't set your mind on anything going around you, but don't set your mind on things that are actually in opposition to God here on earth. Contra Paul, who is always fixing his eyes on heaven and an enactment and an execution of his heavenly calling here on earth. Marshall Seagal hopefully summarizes up all of these characteristics saying this. He says, a certain kind of Christian lives for God, dies to self, and lives forever. Another kind of quote-unquote Christian ultimately lives for self, enjoys this world for a few decades, and then dies forever. That brings us then to our third and our final heading, a mission to embrace. With that tragic warning to avoid this particular mindset, to avoid this group of people, Paul concludes this chapter and heads into chapter 4 by reminding the Philippian believers of their true home and their ultimate destination. Paul reminds them that their mission as believers is to live with the ultimate destination firmly in view. I want you to notice the, the transition even in pronouns, right, to this, this first person plural. Paul talks about our citizenship. We await a Savior, our lowly body, my brothers and sisters, right? Again, you, you cannot get away from the fact that Paul firmly sees himself in partnership with these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a shared calling, a shared mission that they are all called to embrace. I also want you to notice the tense of the verb in verse 20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, right? Paul's not saying, hey, you got to wait a little bit until your citizenship kicks into gear, right? No, that's not what he says. This is a present reality for the Christian. Commentator J.B. Lightfoot writes, he says, our citizenship as Christians 
is even now in heaven. Even while we're here on earth, we are actually citizens of heaven. Now, a couple of notes on the word citizenship. And again, that would have been a word that would have resonated with Paul's audience. You'll remember that Philippi was a Roman colony, that the people there took a lot of civic pride in being Roman citizens. Even though they were undergoing a lot of persecution, there was still a lot of pride in being from Philippi and from being granted Roman citizenship. And in some ways, Paul is probably playing a little bit on their civic pride, saying, hey, listen, you're really proud of being a Roman citizen and being a part of the city here at Philippi, but I never want you to forget your citizenship is in heaven. Alec Matia reminds us and joins this idea of citizenship with the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, saying this, the return of Christ is a distinctive Christian doctrine which cannot ever be jettisoned from our faith. And you'll see that, I think, pretty consistently through all of Paul's writings. Paul's emphasis on the return of Christ to inform our daily present behavior here on earth is something that he'll talk about quite frequently. In verse 21, uh, Paul gives us a little bit of a clue as to when this citizenship is actually fully realized and when Jesus Christ does return that our bodies will be transformed. Well, what exactly is in view here? What does it mean to have our lowly body be like his glorious body? Thielman reminds us that the body that we now inhabit is a practical reminder that we as Christians haven't arrived at our final destination. And I think all of us probably could say a hearty amen to that, right? If this, if this body that we have is the final note, for many of us, myself included, that would probably be pretty discouraging. But what Paul does here is he's saying, listen, this lowly body, this body that is, that is marred by sin and brokenness, that's not going to be the last word. We await a glorious body like Christ. Well, what does that glorious body look like? Well, we know from Luke 24, from the resurrected body of Christ, that, that Christ had flesh and bones, that he was able to eat, that he was able to walk and talk to other individuals and that people could see him. We also realize that there were aspects of Christ's resurrected body that were different than our normal physical bodies. He was able to appear and come and go uh, without being seen. He was able to walk through walls, right? That's not something that, that any of us, or at least that I know of, it's not a talent or a gift that any of us can possess. So if we take our cues then from Jesus in his post-resurrection body, we can understand that this glorious body that we are awaiting has a real physicality to it, flesh and blood and bones, and we can eat and drink, but there will probably also be a dimension and a reality that is still yet unknown to us that we won't fully realize until Christ's second return. In light of all of this, then, Paul concludes with his word, therefore, right? In light of all of this, therefore, this is how you were to live between Christ's first return and his second return, right? It's not get lazy. It's not get anxious and discouraged. It is stand firm. Reminds us of what he closes off his great chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, where in verse 58, Paul admonishes the Corinthians. He says, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up this section quite well. He says, quote, Let hell rage, let the kingdoms of this world arise in their fury, Whatever they may do, we know that the day is coming when the Savior will return, our Lord Jesus Christ. He will come from his throne in heaven back to this world as king, and he will have the ultimate victory over all and will reign supreme. 
Next week, when we come back together to talk, we'll actually talk about, well, what do we do in the meantime? And Paul will address the Philippian believers about the here and now and about his admonition to not grow anxious and to not worry while we're here on earth. And I know that we'll be eagerly awaiting to cover that in detail next time we gather together.